Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would ask you to turn to the fourth chapter of the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4. We're going to read the first few verses, page 189 in the church Bibles. Um, that would be of some help to you. So I told the first service this, I'll tell you this, that as soon as I got done writing the sermon, I said, oh my, what did I do? <laughs> and you shouldn't be surprised by that because I say that just about every time I end my sermons. But um, I, I've, I've, I'm under the uh, authority here of God's word in doing what we're going to do this morning. So don't be alarmed. <laughs> okay, verse 1, chapter 4, the Old Testament book of Ruth. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is, t- is selling the piece of land that belonged to her brother Elamech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow, please, and let's pray. God and Father, we thank you sincerely for the privilege of public worship in Christ's name. Many of us have been doing it for a long time, and... We never tire, God, of this privilege. We need it. We need to do what we're doing week by week. And certainly, Father, you are worthy of our adoration as we sing to you and pay attention, God, when your word is open. So since you are a good and loving Father, we believe that you know how much we need your help now. And we equally believe that you will help us for your glory and for the good of these people. We pray this, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, having just finished our time in Daniel, one of the principles of biblical interpretation which I hope we were able to glean from our studies is that the Bible, the entire Bible, which of course would include the Old Testament, is a book about our Lord Jesus Christ and how He and He alone rescues His people from sin and death because His people cannot rescue themselves. That's the melody line of the entire Bible. The Bible, then, is a book about the saving work of Christ, which means, for example, we did not approach the first six chapters of Daniel as a kind of just a a flat moral lesson saying something like, hey, everybody, Daniel did it, and here's how you can do it too. In other words, we didn't approach our studies in Daniel with lessons like six steps that will get you out of the lion's den in your life. We didn't do that because, first, Putting ourselves first in the story, and and this is going to be central to our time together, putting ourselves first in the story is the worst way to approach your Bible. Second, it's an irrational way to approach the Bible since for God's glory, God on occasionally actually leaves people in the lion's den, 
and they die in the lion's den because the lion's den is not their final place and God has a better plan. To be with God in his heaven, that's the final place and God's glory is the better plan. And thirdly, that line of instruction, here's what you need to do now, you go and do it, is either law, gospel, law, so we save them, but we make them feel miserable, if you would, just saying, now go do this, or it's, it's just law, and that would be at worst. And in both cases, the law only condemns. There is no life in it. So that kind of lesson is trying to say then, and this is, this is the thing, it's trying to say that you have the power to change. So it's either your fault or the guy behind the box's fault that you're not changing. So if you give us the right information, then we'll get to the right destination. Or if you would, we can convert ourselves and we can sanctify ourselves. We just need Jesus sometimes to come along and, and boost us. So you put us in the right situation, point us in the right direction, and we can do it. And loved ones, to try and approach the Bible this way is unhealthy and it's untrue to the biblical witness. And frankly, it's irrational to the minds of most honest thinking people. In fact, sometimes, and I'm going to suggest to you, well, I, sometimes I do worry. And the reason why I worry is I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes I worry about the, the psyche of the evangelical church, broadly speaking. Because so much of what we hear is, here's how you can do it. And if you don't find the success you're after, then by godly, either you're doing something wrong again, or the guy behind the box is doing something wrong. So here you go. You failed. And there you go again. You're disappointing God, and you're disappointing your parents, and you're disappointing yourself once again. Now you pick yourself up. You try twice as hard and get back to work. And Sunday after Sunday, people are just pounded with that kind of, of message. Who can live that way? Who can live that way? Because the Bible plainly tells us this is basic Christian truth. If we are Christians, we are found in Christ with a righteousness that is never our own. And by God's grace, that grace, that righteousness came to us. And we're always clean before God. In us, not one blemish does he see. And so we're going to have to relate to God. And we're going to have to relate to each other. And we're going to have to relate to ourselves. Not by anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's grace. That's Christian. Now, as you think about that, aren't you glad that Jesus, as he left the garden and onto the the, uh, cross, and Paul on his way to his death in Rome, and John on his way to be condemned in the island of Patmos, aren't you glad they didn't say, well, this can't be right? I mean, look how horrible this is. I took a wrong turn somewhere. Somebody gave me some wrong information. Loved ones, our modern culture provides more comforts and self-improvement ideas than any in history, and in that you would think, you would think you would find a a content and happy people, yet the Western world is about as unhappy a society as there has ever been. French writer and philosopher Pascal says, if our condition were truly happy, we would not seek diversion from it in order to make ourselves happy. It's a good thought. So let's then begin by asking ourselves this question. How did the early church read and understand their Bibles? In other words, how did Jesus and the apostles and the early church read their Bibles, understand their Bibles, preach their Bibles, which was the Old Testament, and, and write in the New? And that is an incredibly important question because I suspect 
most of you here have some kind of Bible reading program. I, I'm sure that many of you fathers teach your kids and, you, and your families the Bible and husbands and wives. I'm sure you read the Bible together, which is fantastic, and you're to be commended for that. Okay, so when you read your Bible, there's almost instinctively some kind of interpretation process going on. Some type of process when you read the passage and you're trying to understand what the passage is saying. Now, today... I'm going to suggest to you that it's not unusual to find the average Christian reader reading and approaching the Bible something like this. Where am I in this text? What is in here for me? What can I get out of this? What can I learn as I read to discover what I can do or even pray for, for self-improvement? They might even say, okay, God, speak to me through this text. But again, they keep themselves in front, so it's hard to receive what God is actually truly saying through that specific text. And I'm going to suggest to you that that way of reading is typical. It goes something like this. Okay, I'm not a very good husband. I want to be a good husband. I'm going to open up my Bible and find out how to be a good husband. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good child. I'm not a good dad. I'm going to open up my Bible and find out what I need to do. That's the starting place. I'm suggesting to you this morning that is not to be the starting place. Because in that, one of the things is that you always assume that your motives are always good. When they may, may, may not be. Okay, so maybe the reason why I'm opening up my Bible to be a better father is because I'm jealous of, of Father X over there. And he's way better at it than I am. So the only reason that I'm opening my Bible is I don't like the way I feel when Father X is fathering. So I'm going to open up my Bible, and I'm going to get better than that guy. I'm going to get the Bible to, to boost me past him. It's frankly part of our fallen nature in which we put ourselves first in everything, even in the Bible. And yeah, Okay, yeah, you might get a speck of help that way and it'll, it'll carry you through the moment and that's fine. But, but here's what you won't get. You will not get, if you do that, you will not get rock solid, life calming, Christ exalting, steel plated truth which will transform your thinking and put the hard moments and the disappointing moments and even the good moments in perspective and underneath the sovereign grace of God. So the apostles in the early church did not read their Bibles in that I way. Jesus did because he was actually the I in the Bible. But the apostles and the early church did not. No, they read it with a Christ-centeredness. The, the theological term is Christocentric. Christ at the center. And so they would open up their Old Testament. Where is my Lord Jesus Christ here? Where is his redeeming work? And that was revolutionary in their context. And if you doubt that, then you need to consider the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were what? They were the religious um, intelligentsia of Jesus' day. And most of you know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew their Old Testament like no other. But most of them hated Jesus. They knew their Bible's great, but they hated Jesus. And Jesus would tell them that the Old Testament is about me. So it was revolutionary in their day, and I'm going to suggest to you, it might be revolutionary in our day. Because... And this is just one of a few reasons, but this is just one reason. It changed the way people spoke and thought about Jesus as they read their Old Testament. 
and you can do your own study on this, but the level of intimacy and affection when speaking of Jesus Christ was heart-moving in the early centuries. They weren't perfect, we understand that, but when you, you get the sense when you read your New Testament, so for example, the book of Acts, that it was easier for them to speak of Christ because all of their attention was first on Him and not themselves. They understood then the great cost that Jesus paid at the cross and what he actually won for them. So it was possible for them to lose their life, like actually lose their life or, you know, reduce their life for Jesus' sake because after all, it was Jesus. When Paul wrote in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, the the root word of that verb to know has romantic and sexual overtones. Meaning, this is what Paul was saying. I want to have a a level of rich intimacy with Jesus Christ. I, I want to know him like no other. Therefore, if we are only on about ourselves when we open the Bible, you know, to either either boost us or boost our ego, then what happens? Well, you're sensible people. We are either so preoccupied with ourselves that we have no time or reason to talk with affection about Jesus, or we're so down about ourselves, we think no one would ever want to hear about Jesus. Not for me. I mean, just look at me. I've got all these things wrong with me. Loved ones, sometimes it's hard to find a Christian who speaks about Jesus like he is their lover in the best sense of that understanding. It's kind of hard sometimes to find a Christian who speaks of Jesus with a lump in their throat being just overwhelmed by the immensity of his grace. Just what is that song? Lost in his love. So it's easy to find a Christian talking about politics. It's easy to find a Christian talking about social issues. It's easy to find a Christian talking about money, talking about the LGBT community. It's easy to find Christians talking about quality of life stuff. That's easy. But it's hard to find people who talk about Jesus like, I can't live if living is without him. So you see, the the early church and the apostles, taking their cues from Jesus, assumed that Jesus was the goal of fulfilling, fulfilling the Old Testament. And therefore, Jesus was actually the key to interpreting the Bible because they, they use their Old Testament, if you would, as proof text in their New Testament writings. Now, you can go home and read Luke chapter 24 at the end, but this, let me give you one scripture. This is John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, and this is what he says. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. So it's okay. Okay, if I could do more of what King David did, then I'm going to be okay. Oh God, please help me to be more like King David. I want to do more. What do I need to do to be more like King David? Okay, this is what Jesus says. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. In other words, you know what? David was the way that he was because of my grace I gave David grace. That's why David was the way that he was. And, and you know what? I'm going to a cross to give you that grace. And I'm going to have to do the same thing for you that I did for David. And, and just give you grace. Because you can't do anything like you should without my help. Do you see the difference there? It's a massive difference. So as a consequence to this, when they read their Old Testaments, which was their Bible. And when the apostles wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament letters, finding Jesus in the Old Testament was their chief concern. In fact, every quote, now listen carefully, every quote in your New Testament that is drawn from the Old Testament, it's about Jesus Christ. 
finding Jesus, not themselves, and, and not even saying, God, what are you saying to me here in this text? Not at first. No, at first, Jesus was their concern, which should be ours. So they would ask themselves questions like this as they consider their Old Testament. Where is the redemptive work of, of God going to show up here in this story? How is he going to save people? How is he going to redeem people? Uh, the book of Hebrews is a good example in the New Testament. Who's going to be the type of Christ? Where is grace? Where is it? Because we don't instinctively think of grace in the Old Testament, but it's there. It's there. So they were convinced that the Old Testament was God-breathed, so they would never reject any page of it, and they were equally convinced that the ultimate God-intended meaning of that given passage was always found only when seen in relation to Jesus Christ. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the divine author of the Old and New Testament. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? John chapter 14, John chapter 16. Bring attention to Jesus. Get people to see Jesus. The words of Jesus. Look at his saving work. Look, look, look at Jesus. Because Jesus himself said this, that he fulfilled the Old Testament and not just the law. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish your Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Therefore, every time we read the Bible... Every time we explain the Bible, we haven't done it well until we get to Jesus Christ and show how we are flawed people and we cannot save ourselves. And God has to intervene to save us, not just sometimes, but every time. God has to intervene to save us through the cross, through Jesus Christ. Every time. Every time. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to see if what I just said was true. And we're going to make application of what I said in the story of Ruth. Now, we can't hit the whole story. We're just going to get the high points. But let's just start there and let's see if what I was saying was true. So Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, came back to Bethlehem after being away a long, long time uh, in the land of Moab. Uh, Naomi was in bitter mourning. She left Bethlehem with a husband and two small boys. She comes back to Bethlehem with no husband and no sons. They each in turn had died. No husbands, no sons, no hope. Death and despair was all around her. So she said, chapter 1, verse 21, that she left Bethlehem full, but she had returned empty. But the story says to us, it was actually the Lord who brought her back. He brought her back with no husband and no sons and only one of her daughter-in-law's Ruth. And you see, as hard as that is, that's one of the messages of the book. Much like Daniel, God has sovereign care. God has oversight and in the direction of our lives. Every speck of our existence is part of his divine plan. Don't take things only at face value, Naomi. Don't grumble against your God when life turns sour. No, your life is in the hands of a loving and merciful providential God. You trust him. Get past yourself. Put yourself in the back. Humble yourself to the plan. And if you would, again, take a back seat, which is hard for humans to do. Naomi comes back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. They have no money. They are the desperate poor. So in a day and a time, and in that time, there was no social security, no social programs. This was their question. How in the world are we going to survive? Social structure, sad. The options for females, terrible. How are we going to live? Here's the question. 
Who's going to save us? Because we can't save ourselves. Catch that? They can't save themselves. They need a savior. So the Lord had made provision for this kind of thing in what we read a few times in chapter 4, the kinsman redeemer. So Naomi and Ruth could have said, okay, here we are with all these burdens. We need some help. We need a kinsman redeemer. We need a savior. And this is how the concept worked in brief. When a situation like Naomi and Ruth arose in Israel, it was the right of the immediate next of kin to come to the rescue and say something like this. Have you got a debt? Let me pay it. Have you got a burden? Let me bear it. Have you got a problem? Let me solve it. Have you got a need? Let me meet it. That was the role of the kinsman redeemer. They were the savior, the rescuer, the redeemer. And so this idea of kinsman redeemer, it came straight from the mind of God. It was in the law of God. And this is important, so listen carefully. This was a reflection of the very nature of God, and it was a projection of that future day. This is future grace when God would send his son, Jesus Christ, into this helpless, poverty-stricken world which keeps trying to ignore God and keeps trying to fix itself, but it can't. And so God sends Jesus into this desperately bankrupt world to be its kinsman redeemer. So the story continues. And the two ladies exercise another basic social provision which God gave in his law. And this was the custom of allowing the poor to glean from the crops of the wealthy. You can read this in Leviticus 19.10, chapter 25, verse 25, and also Deuteronomy 24.19, which says this. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheep, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that your Lord may bless you and the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go back and get more trees, a second time, more olives a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't get every one. Leave some behind for the foreigners, the fatherless, the widow, the poor. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. This is what I command you to do. Now, I want you to understand. I hope you get that. When you harvest, you know, don't, don't be Johnny Prune Juice type miser, hoarder. Leave some. It's not yours. It's ultimately God's. Leave some behind and let those in need glean from the fields the food that you purposely left behind. You charge them nothing and you don't give them a lecture either. And this is what I want you to see. In the providence of God, Ruth unknowingly wants to glean from the field of Boaz. And Boaz was a close relative. He said he was a near kinsman redeemer. But there was another person who stood before Boaz who had the first rights to be the kinsman redeemer. And this fellow, long story short, and remember, we're never told his name because he tried to protect his name. That's another sermon. We're never told his name, but okay, up front, I'm willing to buy Naomi's husband's farmland. That's what was being sold. But when he learned that Ruth was part of the package, he backs off and he puts himself first and he says, I can't redeem it for myself. I'll just ruin my inheritance. Chapter four, verse six. In other words, I can't help you. I can't be your kinsman redeemer. So he puts himself first. 
unwilling to fulfill his obligation. And then here comes Boaz. And he redeems Ruth. And frankly, they live happily ever after. You see, the nameless man, that's the human condition. I can't redeem myself. I can't redeem anybody. Boaz, he's a picture of Christ. And as you probably know, and you can read this at the end of chapter 4, their offspring has the honor of eventually becoming part of the earthly line of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look what the other guy missed. So the kinsman redeemer foreshadows the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He's the one who has the right and and the might to say, you've got a problem, give it to me, I can take care of it. You've got a burden, give it to me, I will bear it. You've got a debt, give it to me, I will pay it. Let me pay it as though it was mine. That's the gospel. That's the Bible. That's the sense of that word redemption. This is to be then our understanding of of this story because this is what happens. When you get to a story like this, especially a chapter like this, and I've read this time and time again for years, people will come to this story and people from the high street, people from the low street will say, you know, um, I wonder uh, in this whole gleaning thing, is Jesus a capitalist or is he a socialist? And I wonder if Jesus was on the earth, would he be Republican or would he be a Democrat? And, you know, I wonder if Jesus was going to drive a car, what kind of car would he drive? Because would he get a Mercedes? Would he actually spend that much money on a Mercedes? Mercedes, the official car of Jesus. Yeah. Here's a good one. This is, this is from the Low Street. I'm claiming my Boaz for the future. Or I'm claiming my Ruth for the, for the future. Loved ones, this is what they do. They hijack the story to their own cause. And so they twist an intent, uh, the intent of the Bible. And so this is what you have to ask yourself. Is the answer Jesus? Or is it a certain economic philosophy? Is it a certain kind of money thing or relational thing? When Jesus walked this earth, he allowed people to call him his redeemer. You've got a burden, your sin, give it to me. I can carry it. You've got a debt in the sight of God, you give it to me. Let me pay it. You have a need you can't possibly meet. You give it to me and you let me meet it. Now, do you see that? You might, you might not. But we would never have fully seen what we just saw and heard until we open our Bibles. And yeah, in the Old Testament, we looked for Jesus first. In fact, this is what we did. We set ourselves aside and we looked for Jesus first. And now we know the story, the rich, full meaning of the story. In other words, when we read and understand our Bible and preach our Bible as Jesus would and the apostles would and the early church would, There he is every time, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is my kinsman redeemer. There he is. You got a problem, he can solve it. There's a price to be paid, he can pay it. Your debt will never be mentioned again. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So then you have to ask yourself this question. Is that how we read and understand our Bible? Or is the Bible kind of like a a weapon of mass destruction? Or is it like a how-to book? 
Or is it your self-improvement manual? I can assure you one is death and the other is life. Let's give the final word to Jesus. Jesus is in a context, Matthew 11, where he just understands that for a long, long time, the Pharisees and Sadducees had misread and mistaught their Old Testament. And he's looking at just a hopeless group of people. And this is the passage that begins, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. But I'm going to read a different translation. It's from Eugene Peterson's The Message. And listen to what he says. It's beautiful. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. And then listen to this sentence. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Beautiful. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. It's gospel. It's in every page of the Bible. It has to be. It has to be taught that way and read that way. May God help us to that end. Let's bow together and pray. Almighty God, you know our hearts. They are ever before you. We have no secrets, Father, hidden from you. Help us to understand your word. Clean our thoughts. Fix our conscience. Help us that we would increasingly love you. And magnify your holy name as we open our Bible, as we read our Bible, as we preach our Bible, and as we obey our Bible. Through Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.